every time we gather here, every time, every Sunday, we, we just, in our, the God's people, the community, the redeemed gather, and it's just a taste of what's really real. What's really real. Because our, our community worship here affirms that this is not the only world. There is another world. There is a destiny that God has appointed for his people. And, and it's our 75 minutes together each Sunday just kind of give us a, a glimpse of that, give us a taste of what's to come. And, and we are going to get a glimpse of this world, the world that is to come, and the, the um, God-saturated, Christ-focused worship service that just is continuing in that world to which we are headed. We're going to get a glimpse of that in Revelation chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. And we're going to be uh, looking at Revelation chapter 5 this morning. And these verses... You you think this worship is energizing and electric? Read, <laughs> read these verses, and these verses give a clear, bold picture as to why we passionately pursue Christ, why we sing, why we pray, why we gather, why we serve, why this congregation exists, why we make much of him. These verses, these verses tell us why. Now, the book of Revelation is, is image and symbol saturated, so we're going to need to unpack some of those symbols. But let's read Revelation chapter 5. It's on page 869 of your church Bibles. It's up on the screen. Then I saw, that's the Apostle John, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders, that's the, the angel elder, okay, the 24 elders, these are angelic elders, one of them, one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the sevenfold spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, 
sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and, I, and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. Did you feel the energy coming from those verses? I did. How can you whisper that chapter? These are energizing words. Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active. And these are living and active words. And, 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 and you know what's amazing about this is that the apostle John was in his 80s. <laughs> He's in his 80s when Jesus gave him this revelation this prophecy. It's, a, it's, a, it's about the year A.D. 95, and the Apostle John, one of the 12, he's in his 80s. He's suffering for the gospel. He's being persecuted for the name of Jesus, and he's in exile. They have, they have removed him from the people that he loves, from his worshiping community, from, from the community of believers in churches all over western Turkey. They've just yanked him out of that, snatched him out of that, and put him in exile on the island of Patmos, a small island just off the coast of what is now Western Turkey. And he can't get to the people that he loves. And so one Lord's Day, Sunday, John was caught up in a vision of Christ and John saw that although he was away from the people that he loved, Jesus was not away. Jesus was very much in the presence of the churches. And Jesus had messages to give 
to those churches. And we read about those messages, didn't we, in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. Jesus dictated to John letters to these seven churches, real churches in real cities. And these letters were full of either encouragements or criticisms or both. The letters to the churches. And after dictating these words to the seven churches, Revelation chapter 4 then says that, that John himself was in the Spirit. That's what it says. I was in the Spirit. In the Spirit. He, he, he stepped into Narnia. <laughs> he was caught up in another dimension. And his eyes, his eyes locked on to a brilliant kaleidoscopic throne room of heaven. In Revelation chapter 4, John enters the oval office of the universe out of which storms of lightning and thunder and rumblings, John sees four living creatures, eyes all over them, wings. These creatures are the pinnacle of animate creation. One had the face of a lion, the pinnacle of nobility. One had the face of an ox, the pinnacle of strength. One had the face of a human being, the pinnacle of, of, of wisdom. And one had the face of an eagle, the pinnacle of speed. All of animate creation was represented in those four living creatures who are in worship before the throne. And then there's 24 angelic elders, ruling elders on 24 thrones. 24 representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. The entire redeemed community of the people of God are represented there. And each elder occupies a throne and each elder has a crown, but they don't occupy that throne for long, and they don't wear that crown very long, because for all eternity, their sole existence is to glorify and magnify and make much of the one enthroned. And so they get off of their throne, and they fall down on their face, and they take off their crown, and they just sing two hymns. That's all they do. And they never get tired, <laughs> ever. You are holy, 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 holy holy and, and you are worthy you are worthy i mean we go about listen we go about with our john john kennedy underneath the desk lives with our toys but above the desk is the throne room it's another world and there's worship there's worship going on and it's going on right now and and every now and then, you know, the Bible pulls back the curtain and lets us take a glimpse at life above the desk. Real life, real worship. And we connect with that world. We, we are energized by that. And we're energized by these verses. And the reason why is because we are worshipers at heart. We are. We are wired to worship. And worship we will. Everyone worship something. You see, worship is giving all that you are to all that the object of your worship is. And so it's important to get the object right. Any old God won't do. Oh, no. No, because you see, you become like you worship. No. You know, what we worship, we become. What we worship, we become. You worship money and see what kind of person you're going to become. You worship beauty, you can see what kind of a person you're going to become. Worship power, see what kind of a person you're going to worship, worship youth, worship your children, and see what kind of a person you're going to become. 
Worship control. and See what kind of person you're going to become. Got to get the object of your worship right. Because we become what we worship. What are you becoming today? What are you becoming today? Before whose throne are you taking off your crown? Because what we revere, we resemble for ruin or restoration. Revelation 4. And in Revelation chapter 5, the apostle John, he, he is still in the throne. By the way, John did not write chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 2. That was later on, and it's one big swooping scene. Four just kind of goes right into five. And, and he's still in the throne room of feverish worship. Did you see what caught John's eye there in verse 1? What caught John's eye? A scroll. A scroll. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll. What's this? What's that? A scroll. John's audience would have known 1,900 years ago. They would have known just like that. Oh, oh, scroll. That's a legal document. That's a last will and testament. That's what that is. It's a will. God has a will. Did you know that? Do you have a will? You should have a will. God has a will. The scroll is a will. And the scroll had writing on the front and the back to show that it's complete. Nothing is left out. There's not going to be two scrolls. Oops, God says, I forgot something. Let me add it later. No, none of that. It's comprehensive. It's complete. There's nothing more to add. It's final. It's front and it's back. It's a will. It's God's playbook. It's God's plan. The scroll is God's plan to bless God's people and punish evil. That's what's in the scroll. The scroll is what God is going to do to restore Eden. The scroll is what God is going to do to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. That's what's in the scroll. The, the scroll contains the full story. The scroll contains the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, the full story of God's sovereign decrees regarding the destiny of this world. That's what's in the scroll. And it has seven seals. You see that? Seven. Seven blobs of wax, then stamped, sealed, to state its significance. The more seals back then, the more important the scroll was. And to prevent tampering. Roman law said that a will or a testament was sealed with seven seals by seven witnesses and it's ready to be opened. It's ready to be opened. The scroll in the right hand of him who sat on the, the last will and testament. And in verse 2, an angel appears. A mighty angel thunders throughout creation. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? He's a mighty angel because he has a mighty voice. And his voice is going to carry all throughout creation. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to to break the seals and open the scrolls and look inside. You see, once the seals are broken, the will, the contents of the will is going to be put into play. We have wills, and when there is a death, then, then the will gets put into play, and breaking the seals triggers this mechanism whereby the contents of the will get put into motion. 
And who's responsible for that? The executor. The executor of the will is the one who's responsible to put the directives into play. Someone has to be the executor. Who is that going to be? Who is worthy? Who is worthy to be the executor of God's will? I mean, this is no ordinary will. This is not Randy's will. (laughs) Okay? The the question is not, who's going to get Randy's golf clubs? Okay? Not... No, it's, a little, it's more important than that. By the way, nobody's getting Randy's golf clubs. They're going in the casket. Golf clubs are personal. Golf clubs are personal. Yeah, if, you were a, if you're a golfer, you would know that. You would say amen. If you're a golfer, you say yes, amen. That's right. You say, can I, Randy, can I borrow your golf clubs? No, you can borrow my friend's golf clubs. Mine. It's not like my will. This is, this is the will of the one enthroned. This is the will of the one who lives in unapproachable light, that one. This is, this is the will of the one who is so holy and so worthy that there, that one's face is not described, only that which happens around the throne is described. This is the one whose throne rests on a sea-like glass. See, the Hebrews, they, they hated the ocean because it was unpredictable, it was chaotic. But uh, see, on God's side of the table, on God's side of the desk, it's, it's not chaotic, it's a still, it's a sea of glass. You can walk on it. It's his will. That's the one we're talking about. The one to whom elder angels and living creatures are crying, holy, 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 worthy. Who is prepared to waltz right up to that one and take the scroll and say, oh, I'll do it. Really? You'll do it. Just like that. When Charles Colson worked for President Nixon in the White House, Colson said that lobbyists and legislators would come to the Oval Office and uh, Colson's office was right next to uh, Nixon's. And so there's this waiting room that the lobbyists and legislators would be directed to to await their entrance into the Oval Office. And these visitors, Colson said it was so comical because these visitors would come with their prepared speeches and they, you know, they were going to tell the president. They were going to were speak their mind to the president of the United States. And, and then the aide came to escort them in and these guests would set their jaws like lions and march toward the door, Colson said, but every time without fail, once the door swung open and the aide announced, the president will see you, it was as if they suddenly sniffed something intoxicating. They were self-conscious about walking into the room and walking across the plush blue carpet on which was sculpted the great seal of the United States and, and Mr. Nixon's voice and, president and presence, like every other president, filled the room. Colson said, no one ever showed any hostility toward the president. They forgot their best rehearsed lines. They nodded when the president spoke, and when they happened to disagree, they apologized profusely for it. And then I love what Colson says. He says this, the lions of the waiting room became the lambs of the Oval Office. John is in the Oval Office of God's house. Who is worthy to waltz right up 
there and wedge their way right through 24 ruling angels who themselves can't even look upon the throne, who themselves cast off their crowns and fall to their face. And just when they're ready to put that crown back on and sit on the throne, they, gotta, they do another wave of worship. And this is going on and on and on. They can't even approach the throne. Who has the chutzpah to, to just walk right up there and, and snatch that throne? Answer, no one. No one. Verse 3 says, but no one in heaven, no living being there, no one on earth, no living being there, or no one under the earth, none of the dead, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. No one. And this is a problem. This is it's a problem. You see, you see, if, if, if no one opens the scroll, then uh, the will will not be put into play. And if God's will is not put into play, then his will is not done. And if God's will is not done, then is he really in charge? And if he's not in charge, is he? Is it, if, if no one can open the scroll, then what is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of life? If, if no one can open the scroll, what is the meaning behind inexplicable suffering? If no one can open the scroll, why did that mother get pancreatic cancer? Why was that father drowned at Lake Clinton? Why did that soldier go down in that chopper? If no one can open the scroll, why are families, generations of families, kept in slavery year after year after year after year with no end in sight? Human trafficking still occurs in our world today. I mean, how can this be? If no one, if no one can open the scroll, why in Bangkok, Thailand, will junior high-age girls eke out an existence as prostitutes unable to escape the cesspool of moral filth? If no one can open the scroll, who's to say that 9-11 was an act of terror? Who's to say? If no one can open the scroll, who's to say that racism is wrong and, and not just a part of chance evolutionary process where the strong outsurvive the weak? I mean, do, you may come here today and you say, oh, I don't believe God exists. Okay, well, you, do you really have the courage then to live out the implications of that belief? Do you? You see, if there's no God, then there can be no sin. There, there can be no sin. Because if there's no God, then against whom have we rebelled? I mean, if there's no God, there's no rebellion. If no one can open the scroll. And if no one can open the scroll, then maybe, maybe the Joker in the movie Batman was right when he said to Harvey Two-Face, upset the established order and everything becomes chaos, I'm an agent of chaos. And you know the thing about chaos, it's fair. Yeah. In August of the year 2000, the nuclear submarine, the Russian nuclear submarine, Kursk, 
experienced an explosion that sent it to the bottom of the ocean. And when divers combed the wreckage of that submarine, they found a letter written by Lieutenant Dmitry Kolesnikov. It was a handwritten note to his wife. It was penned after the explosion that sealed the submarine's doom, and it confirmed speculation that the crew had not all died instantly. Kalisnikov wrote, all the crew from the 6th, 7th, and 8th compartments went over to the 9th. There's 23 people here. None of us can get to the surface. None of us can get to the surface. And then he wrote affectionate words to his wife. And, and eerily, the last lines of the letter indicated that death was looming. The death event was coming. The auxiliary power had failed. And Kalisnikov wrote unevenly in pitch darkness. His last words were, I am writing blind. I am writing blind. And now do you know why John was weeping? Because if no one opens the scroll, then life really is, life really is a sunken submarine. And, and we're just in that sunken submarine with, with, and all we've got to encourage us is some Russian chicken scratch which says, none of us can get to the surface, I am riding blind. Who is worthy? to put into play the one infallible plan to end this hell on earth. Who? Who? And verse 5 says, then. Then. That's a great word. Then. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John hears of this militant messianic image from the Old Testament books of Genesis and Isaiah. The lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Oh, nations often attach their identity with some predator animal, you know, because it's, it, because it's a conquering warrior-like animal, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I mean, the United States, we have that, right? The eagle, the eagle. Uh, Russia has that, right? The bear, the bear, the bear, eagle, the bear, lion. I still don't know what to make of the Canadian beaver. <laughs> I'm just asking. The lion of the tribe of Judah. John hears of this militant, messianic image. He hears about the lion, but then he looks. He looks. Verse 6, then I saw a lamb. He hears about the lion, but he looks and he sees a lamb. Looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. It's not, he's not seeing two images there now. There's just one image. The lion is the lamb, and it's not just a lamb. It's a slain lamb. A slain, and it's not just a slain lamb. It's a slain lamb standing. Now, slain lambs don't stand. 
unless they've come back from the dead. Yeah, and, 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 and in one swift stroke, the Apostle John gets to the core of our faith. Christianity is victory through sacrifice. Victory through sacrifice. The slain lamb was mortally and violently wounded while defeating his enemy. But then like a conquering ram, the lamb has seven horns signifying the fullness of strength and power. Lion, lamb, slain lamb, slain lamb standing, conquering ram. He has seven eyes which are the Holy Spirit sent out into the entire world. And and nowhere he's standing. Where is the lamb? In the center. He did not come from outside the throne room. He didn't enter through the door like the Apostle John did. He's not an outsider who came in. He's been there all along. Do you hear what John is saying? God himself meets his own qualifications to put into play his will for his people. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The Lamb said, I can do this. I can do this. Give me the ball. I'll score. I can do this. It's, it reminds me of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Then I said, here I am. That's Jesus speaking. Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And God's will was the cross. The, the will of the Father is the will of the Son because the Father and the Son are one. That's why Luke nine fifty one says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He took the scroll. He took the scroll. And when he took the scroll, all creation went assembly hall nuts. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and each one had a harp. Now, you know, we got to unpack that because when we think harp in our culture, our mind goes to W-I-L-L and classical music and all of that. And no, The harp in the Old Testament was a, was a joyful, celebrative instrument. There's just some musical instruments you, you, you can only play joyfully, you know. Think banjo. Okay, all right, think ban- I mean, I've never heard a banjo at a funeral. <laughs> Even in Oklahoma, I've never heard a banjo at a funeral. Oh, no, they had a, it was a harp, and, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, which are the prayers of the saints. And when you read that, you know, write down, or think, think Psalm 141. Psalm 141. The psalmist says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. You see. And, and it's a specific prayer. You see, it's, it's not just any old prayer. It's a specific prayer. And the prayer is this. You've got to keep reading Psalm 141. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me from the trap set by evildoers. It's like, God, it's like, God, when are you going to fix this? When is this, when are you going to make this right? Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by in safety. See, see, and so the rest of the book of Revelation is the answer to the saint's prayer. 
The rest of the book answers the prayer. I'm fixing this. I'm taking care of business. And that's why they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom, of, a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. You, you are worthy. You are worthy. What is, what is spoken of the one on the throne in chapter 4 is spoken of the Lamb in chapter 5 because the Father and the Son are one. You are worthy. But why is the Lamb worthy? Why is the Lamb worthy? Is it because he's God? Is it because he's deity? No, 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 that's not what the text says. No, the Lamb is worthy because he was slain. The Lamb is worthy because he suffered a bloody, violent death on a Roman cross and in doing so defeated Satan. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ puts the will into play to accomplish the purposes of God. See, the will of God was put into play by God in the death, burial, and resurrection of God. Grant Osborne was one of my teachers at school. I love what he says. When Satan put Christ on the cross, it was his greatest tactical error because he took part in his own defeat. The lamb is worthy because at the cross, God saved us from himself by himself. The cross is the righteousness of God and the mercy of God, the justice of God, and the grace of God. The, the cross is God's self-satisfaction by his self-substitution. Listen, don't ever, make, don't ever make Jesus the object of God's punishment on the cross because Jesus was no object. He was the subject. He was the one taking initiation to save us. And that's why all creation explodes in assembly hall. Oh. Style, praise. God created a new race from every race, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every ethnicity. In Christ, God's people are multiracial, multi-ethnic community of redeemed believers. And then all, and then it just cuts loose. Verse 11, I looked. I heard the voice of many angels, thousands and thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They sang in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And notice the sevenfold acclamation of worship in verse 12. Seven is a symbolic number, meaning completeness. Worthy is the lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. John said, I heard in every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. <laughs> and the elders fell, fell down and worshiped. Oh my. Wow. Hmm. Jesus' victory came through sacrifice. That's it. His victory came through sacrifice. It came through surrender. The resurrection came through the crucifixion. And if that was his destiny, church family, that will be our destiny. Revelation 4 says you become what you worship. 
And Revelation 5 says, if you worship Christ, you will become like Christ. And that means victory, but it means through sacrifice. So you know what? It may get worse. People have been wondering this week, has things bottomed out? Are things going to get worse? You know what? It may get worse. It may get worse. But our victory is through surrender. It's through sacrifice. I, I, I love how the believers are described in Revelation 14.4. Here it is. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Jesus went to the cross. We go to the cross. That's it. No discussion. He goes there. We go there. Because when you worship Christ, you'll become like Him. Now listen. I have a last word here. Okay, you worship Christ, you become like Christ. Okay, thank you, preacher. All right, well, let me just tell you something. Um, it's really easy to do that right here, right now. Because we're here in this room. It's just, this is as easy as it's going to, worshiping Christ and becoming like Christ, it's as easy as it's going to get right here, right now. Because we're together. But then we're going to leave. And we're going to go through those glass doors. That's where it's going to get tough. Yeah. But we must still follow the Lamb wherever He goes. What does that look like? What, what, what does that look like? What does that look like? Can I get real practical here? Can, can I, there are many pictures. Can I just share one? Can I just share one? It's a picture for Christian husbands. For Christian husbands. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What, so what's that look like? Following the lamb wherever he goes. Husbands loving. Christian husbands, Jesus Christ went to the cross for his church. You go to the cross for your wives. Let's say you've had a disagreement. This time, it, it was her fault. This time. Okay. Following the Lamb wherever He goes means this. Christian husbands, it means that we must take the lead in reconciliation. We must take the lead. See, see who took the initiative to make all things new? Who left the comfort and security of the throne of justice to put mercy at work at Calvary? Who came back to Peter after he denied him three times. Who has returned to you again and again and again, forgiving you and offering his fellowship afresh? Has it not been Jesus, the great leader, the great initiative taker? So husbands, your headship means go ahead. Take the lead. Doesn't matter if it was her fault. It does not matter. That didn't stop Christ. Who, who will break the icy silence first? Who's going to do that? Who's going to choke out the words? I want things better. Can we talk? Shame on us, Christian husbands, if we think that since it's her fault, well, then she's obliged to say the first reconciling word. Because that's not what Jesus did. Headship is not easy. 
It is hard work. It is humbling work. It is the work of a priest. But that is who Jesus has made us. We are a kingdom of priests. And as a community, we will rule. As individuals, we are priests. We rule and we serve. We rule by serving. We are servant leaders just like Jesus. And you become what you worship. So if you worship Christ, you will become like him. So follow him. Follow the lamb wherever he goes. And the four living creatures said, Amen.